0: I can't follow that. Come back. That's what I'm talking about. Well, we're still in Luke chapter 1. You can go read in Matthew, Mark, or John if you want to, but I'm staying in Luke 1 for the moment. The ladies are all happy and the men are all upset because they know they get to come in and sit at the back. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. We thank you for these wonderful songs that we've been listening to and how they stir our hearts with gratitude as we remember the gospel and we remember what it means to be redeemed and how we think of our future in heaven with you. And we do pray that. You would speak to all of those who can only look at those words as foreign words tonight, and that the gospel and redemption and heaven might become realities in their life. Help us now in the study of your word, for we need your help. Our Lord is the vine, and we are only branches. All will ever be. We know that separated from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. And so, hear us as we call upon you now. To speak to us through your word, to speak to our hearts, to be with us, to meet with us tonight and be glorified in our midst. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. When we all get to heaven, they sing. And boy, I tell you, I don't know when they they make me change my message. I got to get back here to Luke and get this done. But I'm going to tell you something. Not everybody is going to heaven. Not everybody's going to go there. And when they were singing that, I was thinking about what it says in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowards, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters and all liars shall have their place in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. All liars. We start off early in my family teaching children not to lie. And reminding them all liars. God will not let liars into heaven. All liars, it says. Who is the father of lies? All lies are born in hell. All lies are born in the devil's heart. All lies are born in our rotten, sinful flesh. But there are no lies in heaven. God said not going to be any lies there. But you, you looked at the list, didn't you? There's something worse, something at the top of the list that's worse than being a murderer, that's worse than being a sorcerer, and that's worse than being an idolater, and a liar, and a whoremonger, a person who goes with prostitutes. There's something worse than all of that. And it's to be a coward. The fearful... It says, and other versions say, the cowards. And what does it mean by that? People who know the gospel is true and they're afraid to trust the Lord because they might have to suffer the consequences. They might have to change. They might be discriminated against. They might lose their friends. They might have to break up with their boyfriend. They might have to break up with their girlfriend. They might have to change their place of work. They might have to give up things that they like to do. They're worried about what people are going to say. And they're afraid. Like we used to say when I was growing up, Frady Cat, Fraydy Cat. And we used to push each other and tease each other. Are you afraid to go in that room? Go in there. The the lights off. We watch a scary movie, you know, and one night I know my mother stayed up with me and we watched uh something on Halloween evening, some horror thing that was on the television. I think it was vampires and I went in the kitchen to get something to drink. I don't know if she remembers this, but I do. And I came back out and I walked up behind her while she's watching the screen. And she turned around and whopped me one. I still remember it. Don't you scare me like that. Frady cat, frady cat. Not going to be any frady cats in heaven. Listen to me. Jesus Christ was not afraid to go hang on the cross for you. And they spit on him. And they insulted him. And they laughed at him. And they murdered him. We say in Spanish, El dio la cara. He gave, it doesn't translate literally. We say, He gave his face. It means, He stood up for you. He presented himself. He stood there and took it. And the Bible says, if you won't confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father who is in heaven. People who in here, around believers, will talk the Christian talk. But out there, at school, and at work, they're hiding, they're afraid. They don't want to be known. They're more afraid of their friends or whoever, their family or whoever, than of what the Lord said. Cowards. Cowards are not going to be in heaven. Stand up for Jesus. He stood up for you. He hung for you on the cross. And the unbelieving. It's worse to be an unbeliever. Revelation 21.8. It's worse to be an unbeliever. than it is to go with prostitutes and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. At the top of the list, the thing God puts at the top of the list, the cowards and the unbelieving. And I think those are the chief two reasons why people are not going to make it to heaven. God can't make you believe he will not coerce your will. He invites you to believe. He gives you reasons to believe. He tells you the wonderful story of the gospel. He offers you redemption. as a free gift. Salvation. The washing away of your sins and, and to give you a new life. A whole new life. And it costs you absolutely nothing. It cost him everything. He offers it to you, but he will not force it upon you. He didn't have a little meeting with the devil before the foundation of the world and say about election. I'll take this one and you can have that one. And I'm going to save this one and you can have that one. And they didn't divvy up the human race before before time and decide who they were going to get let get saved and who they were going to send to hell. That didn't ever happen. Whosoever will may come, the scripture says. And, when, and Moody said, when you go in the in the Pearly gate, you see there on the side where you're going in, it says, whosoever will may come. And when you get in and you look back from the other side, it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And that's exactly the way it is. God chooses to save people who come to Jesus Christ and trust in him. That's how it works. So don't, we say in Spanish, no te calientes la cabeza. Don't heat up your head. Don't get an overheated head trying to figure all of those things out. Just come to the Lord. It was wonderful singing we had tonight, but I can't let that pass without asking you if you're sure you're one of the people that's going to make it to heaven. Because if you're not, songs like that will haunt you for all eternity. It's a wonderful thing to sing it and to feel it in your heart, the joy, because you know it's true. But it's torture to hear songs like that. And, uh, and uh, even to sing with them and to enjoy them. But you, in the back of your mind, you got that nagging doubt. But is that me? But am I saved? But am I redeemed? Do I know what it means? Am I really going to be in heaven? Did I sing about heaven on earth only to go to hell for all eternity? Revelation 21:27 says, There shall in no wise enter into it. It means heaven. Since they sang about heaven. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles or whatever works an abomination or makes a lie. But they whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But those people who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ and said like that story I told you about that friend of mine who's who taught his children to pray. Every night, teach me that I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. Have you ever come to the Lord that way? I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. It was for me. It was for sins that I have done. He groaned upon the tree. Because that's how you get saved. You identify yourself personally with the Savior. I did the sinning. He did the dying and the suffering. And he saves me. I can't save myself. I can't reform myself. Only Christ can save me. But no one, God, has rules for heaven. And there's not going to be any contamination there. And there's not going to be any defilement there. There's not going to be any sin of any kind In any way, shape, or form. Nothing that defiles will enter into heaven. Has the Lord cleansed you? Revelation 1 says he washed us from our sins in his own blood. And that's how people like you and me can get to heaven. Because we, being defiled by our own thoughts, by our own heart, by our own words and deeds... Being defiled need to be cleansed. And the only person who can cleanse us is Jesus Christ. And he did that when he died on the cross. But it's not automatic. You have to come to him and trust him. To have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We used to sing that song too, didn't we? Is my name written there on the page white and fair? You answer the question. Wonderful singing. (laughs) And I hope it's true about you. Back to Luke chapter 1 for our second message tonight. (laughs) We were thinking last night about John's training at home. We've talked about his parents and what an important subject that is for us to remember that What we are as mothers and fathers. And those of you who aren't yet. What you are as potential mothers and fathers. The way your character is being formed and shaped right now. Is who you're going to be in the future. How important that is. And those who are grandparents also. What an important role we play. Because our lives touch the lives of young people. And God was going to bring his son into the world, and he was bringing a messenger before his son to prepare people, to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of the Lord Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. The nation was not prepared, and the nation needed the voice of a man who would speak for God, and God sent a messenger in the form of a little boy, in the form of a child conceived in the womb of Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, a miracle child, Born to a woman who was old and barren, had been all her life, never had any children. He had a great inheritance, little Johnny. Had a great inheritance, a great heritage. His parents were not rich and famous. But they were godly. They were righteous, both righteous before God. They were blameless. They were prayerful. They were in touch with God. And they lived before God all the time. They didn't play with two decks of cards. And they trained him at home. He had a father who was a priest. And we saw that last night, how the priests were supposed to give the instruction to the people. They were supposed to know the word of God. The priest's lips shall keep knowledge. And, and at his, and in his presence or at his feet, the people would seek to know the Word of God. And isn't that the way it should be in our homes? And we said, we're all priests. But priestly function is not about preaching. The priesthood of all believers doesn't mean everybody can get up and preach to the congregation. That's not what that's talking about. Priests offer sacrifices. And priests, as we saw, in the home of John the Baptist, have such a what people would consider a, an ordinary and low visibility ministry the teaching of their children in the home. Let me tell you this when you give out the Word of God in your home, you're exercising your priesthood, you don't just exercise priesthood in the meetings do and we need to. You're acting like a priest. The priest's lips should keep on. when you study the Bible to know it and when you speak of that to other people, you're acting like a priest. That's priestly ministry. And he had a father who could do that. A lot of fathers and a lot of people, leaders in churches, think that the only way to keep young people Is to be the he, 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 ha, ha, ha man with him. The practical joker. John had a father who wasn't a practical joker. He wasn't a cool and fun guy to be with. He was a priest. And the priest had this thing put on them, on the miter. The high priest who represented all the priests in the Old Testament. He had this engraving put on the miter that he wore. And it said What? Holiness unto the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord is a constant reminder of how he was to live. Young people today need a challenge. They need a cause to live for. They don't need to be consented and condoned for fear of losing them. They need to be taught and challenged to give themselves, their lives, their youth, their strength, the best years of their lives to God and not to the world. To live for the Lord. To be enthusiastic about Him. To be committed to Him. Devoted to Him. Sacrificial for Him. They're taught to do that for everything but for Christ. John had a blessing. He had a a priestly father. And his mother. We didn't spend much time talking about her. But I want you to remember Luke chapter 1 says she was of the daughters of Aaron. That woman had a godly heritage. But you know something? It's not enough to have a godly heritage to be able to look back and say, well, my father or my grandmother played the piano in the assembly at such and such a place, and my father this and that, and my grandfather and my great-grandfather. And when people get finished saying all those things, I say, "Uh uh-huh, and you what? We had a fellow come to visit us one time when I was on the base when I was still in the service. In Turkey, I was on the base there, and he came to the base chapel, and he was the biggest clown you have ever seen. He came with a, a group of people that were supposed to do some kind of a, a theatrical interpretation of a Bible passage. There's no need to go into all that now, but he, in the presentation and outside of it, and his doing, he was the biggest buffoon. There's an old word for you. Clown that you have ever seen. He have a serious bone in his body, and to top it all off, he came and flounced around and plopped down in the seat beside me and laughing and carrying on. And he said, "Well, uh, he said I don't know if you know it, but he said Spurgeon was my great 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 grandfather." And I said, "Well, the only way you could tell it would be by doing a genetic test." See, what I'm trying to say by this is you can have a great heritage. I'm talking now to the young people because we heated up the parents last night. But you can have a a wonderful heritage and you can throw it all away. You can trash it. You can blow it completely. Josiah, the last and great king of the good kings of Israel, who brought in that great revival in the times of Jeremiah. And Josiah had three sons that ruled after him. The first one, no sooner did he get on the throne than he threw away and trashed everything that his father had done. Don't get me onto that. We'll, have, we'll never finish with John. But I'm just trying to say, in one generation, it didn't have to be a long thing, gradually over 100 years, 200 years, slowly, almost invisibly, the changes came. No, sir. This is how fragile the truth is. In one generation, it can all be trashed. Every blessing that God has given, every step, every advancement, everything that has been gained by following after the Lord, it can all be trashed in one generation by one son, by one daughter, by one young person, by one child, by one person who refuses to know and to follow God like his forefathers did. What is the Christian faith to you? Is it an experience, an inheritance, a convenience, or a nuisance? Are you for real? Josiah's sons were not for real. John was, and I'm sure he brought joy to the heart of his father, his father and his mother, who had taught him in the home the word of God, whose own, their, their very own lives, their righteousness And blamelessness and their conduct before God were a constant example to that young man. But it's not enough to have godly parents. If you're not like them, you're trashing everything that they're trying to do for you. You're throwing it all away. And you may live long enough to be deeply sorry for that. And to wring your hands one day and say, I wish I had listened. John had the vow of a Nazarite on him. His training in the home included the training of the Nazarites. We saw that last night. He he won't touch wine or strong drink. Going back to Numbers chapter 6 and the vow of the Nazarite. You should read that in Numbers 6, 1 to 8 if you'd like to. And study it and just see in the Old Testament what those people did who were devoted especially to the Lord. They gave up even things that were legitimate in order to be devoted completely unto the Lord. Pleasures... And simple things, food and, and other things that, that, that were legitimate. They weren't things that were wrong, but they gave them up in order to give all of their attention and their devotion to the Lord and to be set apart, especially for Him. And John was taught that from his youth. And you know what? We need to teach that. But to teach it, we have to live it. You don't wait until you're 65 or 70 to start thinking about what it says in there about be holy in all your manner of life. You don't sow your wild oats first. There's no need to sow the wild oats. And everybody who sows them is sorry that they did. The Nazarite devoted to God not afraid to be different. No. And a lot of people are today. They're afraid or ashamed to be different. Their friends are going to laugh at them because they don't do what their friends do because they don't go where their friends... because they are not. They don't talk like their friends do, et cetera, et cetera. And we as parents sometimes are so worried about this. And as young people... So obsessed with this point of fitting in and being like everybody else that it means absolutely nothing to us what God's word says. And parents, we are guilty for encouraging them and consenting them instead of teaching them God's ways. Live to please God. That's what the Nazarite did. Not like those of the world who live to please themselves holiness unto the Lord and we we were coming to this last night when we stopped in the third place John's training at home was marked by this his was a life directed by God's word directed by God's word God had spoken through the angel to his father And God had filled his father with the Holy Spirit to speak. And thou, child, and he spoke to him and he told him what his life was going to be like. Here is a child whose whose life was molded and guided by the word of God. And in this we ought to be able to say about ourselves and about our children. My life and my family's life and my children's life. And children ought to accept it and they ought to say, this is the way I want to live. I want to live like John. I want to live guided by God's Word. Better to live a few, a few years of quality life knowing and serving God and have, and having done something for Him that'll count in eternity than to throw it all away, to trash it and go into an eternity lost. Or maybe to go to heaven empty-handed. A life guided by God's word. Verse 15. Chapter 1 he had said. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. The angel told him that. They lived before God. We saw that back in verse 6. They were both righteous before God. And in verse 15 he says. And that's how he's going to live. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Because hear me now. The most important thing is how God looks at it. Not how your friends look at it. Not how the majority looks at it. But in the sight of the Lord, that's where things are made right. And if in God's sight it is right, then the whole world can be against you and the whole world is wrong. And that's why someone said one time, one plus God is a majority. A life guided by God's word. And we have it. And we have so much more than they did. We have the whole written Word of God given to us. In those days, they had the Old Testament written and complete. But just think about how much more we have. We have the Old Testament, and some of you still haven't read it. And I don't know how you can understand the New Testament. You're blocking out two-thirds of the Bible and the foundation on which the New Testament is written and based. It's like coming into a movie Or reading a book and going two thirds of the way through it. And then picking it up from there. And then going out and talking to people like you know everything about the movie or the book. Do what? We have it. We have a greater privilege. We have greater light. We have greater knowledge. All written down. All given to us here. And our lives, in comparison to the saints of God in those days, are paltry and pathetic imitations, oftentimes, of a faith that we have never really come to understand. A life directed by God's Word. The Lord Jesus taught his disciples that, didn't he? Matthew 28. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It didn't say teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That, unfortunately, is the way a lot of people read that. They don't get the full impact of it. Teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's That's the way they understand it. We're just supposed to teach everything that Jesus said. That's not what it says. It says teaching them to observe all things. The New Testament never contemplated for one instant the idea that congregations of God's people could have the luxury to know what God said and to not do it. The New Testament never divvied up Christianity into carnal Christians and spiritual Christians like some parachurch organizations have done and perpetuated their doctrines over the years, filling places of Christian worship with people who never really knew the Lord or intended to do what he said, who were only trying to get a get out of jail card in their pocket so they could not go to hell. The Bible says teaching them to observe, that means to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you and that's what we're supposed to teach we're not just supposed to teach what they call nowadays the primary or the principal doctrines of the faith this is another one of those uh, false divisions you have the primary doctrines uh, and, and then you have the the secondary or the less important The main doctrines and the less important doctrines. Okay, it says here, teaching them to observe all the main doctrines of the things that I have told you. Where did Jesus divide them up? You say, ah, but but some things you have to know and believe in order to be saved. And some things you don't. Okay. But you're talking about salvation. I'm talking about discipleship. Don't compare apples and oranges. The truth that must be known and believed in order to become a believer, in order to be saved, to be redeemed, and to know you're going to heaven is very simple. It doesn't require a college degree. It doesn't require a super enlightened intellect, and it doesn't take a long time. And if you don't know it, and you'd like to tonight before you walk out those doors, you can know everything you need to know to be saved, and you probably do already. But we'd be glad to sit down and explain it to you again, and it wouldn't take long. Because the problem is not that the information is difficult to assimilate or to understand. So, salvation is one thing, and discipleship is another. When a person comes to trust the Lord and follow Him, then the Lord, opening up His Word, says, Now, your mind, now learn all the things as a believer. You don't have to do this to get to heaven, but you have to do this to follow the Lord. And we're assuming that you want to follow the Lord. Since you repented of your sins and turned to him. Why should we assume anything else? And so now we take the scriptures and we teach them to observe all things whatsoever he commanded them. Whatever he commanded them to do. You say, oh, well, how do we know that? We just read the gospels? No, you read the epistles. You read all the rest of the New Testament. Because there the spirit of God guided those men that were the Lord's apostles. He told them he would do that. The Lord said, when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you. And I know how we take that. We take that to mean he guides the spirit of the Lord, guides all of us to understand the truth. And that's okay. But that's a secondary application. When he said that, he said it to those men there, to those men who were his apostles. He said, he will guide you into all truth because those men through their writings, And their teachings as apostles were going to give us the complete New Testament. And the word of God was going to be completed. Entire. Whole. No missing parts. The spirit of God was going to guide them and bring to their mind. And help them to remember and to teach and to write down all the things that Christ had to say to his people. So we need to have a life directed by God's word. And we need to know what it says. And we need to stop trying to figure out which teachings and doctrines are optional. Because if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not ever going to convince me that you've got an optional teaching or doctrine in the Word of God. Because Matthew 28:20 20 is going to have to be cut out of my Bible first. Not lives directed by culture, lives directed by tradition, lives directed by what we do a lot of times when we read in the Bible and we see it says we ought to do something and we go up periscope. Oh, look, there's a church over there and and they have lots of people and they're not doing that, so it must not mean that. Don't look around first to see who else is doing it or isn't doing it. Let's have an agreement between us. If God's word says it, that's it. That says it. I don't care who else is doing what. Don't talk to me about what they did here and what they're doing there. What I care about is what God's word says. And and I think that's what you care about. We don't want to fall into this trap of comparing and looking around and shopping around to see Ah, oh, well, but over there, I like that because you know, I want to learn to like what God's Word says and to do what God's Word says. Even if I'm the only one. Even if no one else is doing it. If God's Word says it, I'm going to do it. Amen. May God help us to have that attitude. But you know what? If you have that attitude, I'm going to tell you a nice surprise you're going to find. You say, even if I'm the only one. And that's the way you should say it. But you're not going to be the only one. You will find... If you obey implicitly God's word, that God will lead you into contact and fellowship with other people who want to do the same thing. He will. You're not going to be the only one. Elijah stood there on the mountain and he said, I, only I am left. And he complained to the Lord and told him what had happened to all the prophets. And, and the Lord said, Well, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. Because that's what they did. Just like they do with images today in certain churches. They bow down to the images and they make the sign and they kiss the feet of the images and kiss the hand of the images and all these things. That comes from pagan idolatry. It has nothing to do with Christianity. I have all these who haven't bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. The Lord says, You're not the only one. But let's go back. Even if you were, even if you were the only one, so what? So what? Didn't we already say the majority is nearly always wrong? You can nearly, without looking at the Bible, you can nearly decide most questions just by looking around and saying, What is everybody else doing? Okay, I'm going to do the opposite. You'd probably be on pretty safe ground in a lot of things just by not doing what everybody else did. Of course, we're not talking about being strange and, just, and being contrary and contradictory to everyone else or being ornery. We're not talking about that. I think you understand what I'm saying. We need to read the Word of God. We need to know what it says. We need to give our counsel based on the Word of God, the advice that we give based on what the Scripture says. The book of Proverbs is wonderful. I don't know how many times we've read it that way in our family. It has 31 chapters. Most months have 31 days. So guess what we do? What day is today? Day 25. Well, today at home, they would be reading Proverbs chapter 25. So you and read those chapters 5 and 6, and there where it talks about the immoral woman. I said, you bet you we read them. In my house, they're not going to learn about that stuff out on the street. We read it, and we talk about it, what it means. I want them to learn early. I don't want them to get it from television and internet and magazines and friends out on the playground and all this other kind of stuff. We read it. Listen, my son, he says so many times, so much counsel about every possible aspect you can think of of Christian living, of life on earth. All the counsel, all the advice given, and there it is written down. That's a wonderful thing. If you can't think of anything else to do, just start reading the book of Proverbs. Well, I don't know what to say. I can't stand up and talk about the book of Proverbs. I can't speak like that like you do. But you'll have to. The book speaks for itself. Just read it. And ask the Lord just to help you to, to select one verse as you're reading and just say, this verse is the verse we want to think about today. You read all these verses. Let's just think for a minute about this one and then just have a little prayer and that's the end. Just think about what a wonderful thing it would be if you went through the book that way with your children. Now, the wonderful thing is, first of all, it would have an effect on you, wouldn't it? Yes, I'm including myself. I know every time I point like this, i got three pointing back at me. So when I say you, it's just my way of having an extended conversation with you. I'm always including myself. Wonderful thing to do. And it says, The hand of the Lord was with him. I like that. The hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 66 of Luke chapter 1. John's. Life was directed by the word of God. Parents, are we willing to direct our children's lives by the word of God? Or are we going to take the counsel of the ungodly that's given to us every day in every way by the world around us? And children, young people, are you willing to have your life directed by the word of God? To say, I'm going to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus. I'm going to do what he says in his word, even if I'm the only one. And I don't care if they laugh. I'm going to be like Christian and Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress when they walked into the city of Vanity Fair. And they laughed at them because they dressed different. And they talked different. Their speech was different. And their companions were different. And they tried to give them things and have them buy the things there in Vanity Fair. All the entertainments and the pleasures of Vanity Fair. And make them stay there instead of going on toward the celestial city. And when they offered them all those things, they said, What? Buy the truth and sell it not. They said, that's what we're interested in the truth. Buy the truth and sell it not. And the world doesn't have any truth to sell you. So we talked about his parents, and we talked about his training at home. And we have to talk about. His time of growth and waiting. And that's at the end of chapter 1. When his father finished speaking. And life went back to into its routine more or less. But John is growing. Time is passing. And what's happening? It says in verse 80. The child grew. And waxed strong in spirit. And was in the deserts until the time of his showing unto Israel he grew and all children grow but not all children wax strong in spirit spiritually and there are adults who have grown up physically but spiritually and emotionally they're little children on the inside we call them sometimes and we don't mean this in an ugly way it's just the truth we say, he or she is a child in the body of an adult. And by that we mean and their, their immature nature. And their petty selfishness and being offended and, and whining and complaining. And all of these things that happen when a person is growing up and you go through a lot of that. Sometimes you just wake up and you're in a bad mood. And and when you're a little kid, it's okay. You wake up in a bad mood. What do you do? You just walk around. uh, 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 And anybody talks to you. uh. You know, that's all right. If you're two, you might be able to get away with that. But what about when you're 22? And 32 and 42 and 52 and you get up in a bad mood and everybody around you. We say he's a child in the body of an adult. The body grew up. The child grew. The body grew up. But what about the person inside it? Have you grown up? Are you growing up? Are you maturing as a person? Are you maturing as a believer? You men remember what we talked about when we studied the book of Philippians? What do we talk about? The frozen Christian. He's not growing, he's not maturing, he's not advancing. He's the same place he was 20 years ago. What about it? What are you maturing and growing? Is your character changing and developing? As your exposure to the Word of God brings a greater knowledge of the Word of God and the ways of God into your life, is your life being transformed? Are you being conformed to this world? or Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? And how is our mind renewed? It needs to be renewed. And this is the book that does it. That we might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of mine. Oops. Will of God. And you know it's a wonderful thing when you get to that place in your life where you hate and distrust your own will. The heart is deceitful, the prophet Jeremiah said, and above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And many people can stand and justify themselves and argue and give their excuses and their reasons, and all the time it's just their wicked and deceitful heart. They're deceived, and they just don't see it. The Lord says, "Grow up." The child grew, and he waxed strong in spirit. Some people are strong; they can do bodybuilding and they can bench press. I've seen them do it, and boy, they got biceps and they can jump and. I remember this fellow that played for, for Duke University years ago. He, he's passed his basketball days now. And he's, he had a standing, uh, what do you call that now in English? Uh, high jump. Not high jump, but vertical jump. That's it. And he had a standing vertical jump of 42 inches. He could stand there. And without doing anything, he could just jump up and pick a quarter off the, the basketball goal. It was incredible. It's incredible what some people can do. You see them get in the air, they're airborne, they're moving the ball all around, it looks like they're not going to come down, they got rockets in their tennis shoes, the legs that they've got. And we admire the strength and the prowess and and, uh, uh, the training that athletes go through, their abilities, their their skills. Well, what is that going to be in eternity? What is that going to be in eternity? The athletes who lived 100 years ago don't have any muscles now. And you have to go back 100 years. There are some that are still alive that were great athletes when I was a little boy. They ain't got no muscles left. Except right here. They're about five months along. Are you growing strong in the Lord? The child grew. Because everybody grows. We grow up. And we grow older. But do we grow wiser and stronger? Are we growing in spirit? Are we growing in character? Are we growing as Christians? Is the person who lives inside of me growing up? This is what. We're seeing here. He grew and he waxed strong in spirit. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. You might as well know it. It's the same way it is with physical strength. If you want to grow strong, you got to do some exercise. This is the way it is. And the Bible says bodily exercise profits little. I'll take that little bit. I use it to maintain the equipment so it keeps functioning. (laughs) I'll take that little bit. But godliness, it says, profits much. Both in this life and in the next. See? You develop a godly character. God likeness. That's what it means to be godly. To be like God. To follow Him. To to mold your character and to allow it to be molded, to be like him, to think like him, to react like him, to make decisions like him, to behave in a way that pleases him, to live like the prophet Elijah who said to Ahab, the Lord in whose presence I stand. Elijah had grown up. He knew that God saw him. He lived like a person conscious of God's presence and who wanted God's approval and blessing all the time. That's growing up to live that way. And some of us need to grow up. We need to stop being babies. And we need to stop being foolish and silly and immature as Christians. Now, you know me, Ari. You should know me by now. You know, I'm not saying you can't have a sense of humor. If you don't think I have a sense of humor, you just come live in my house for a week and see. Ask my children. But life is not a joke. And life is not a game. Life is not a diversion. Life is serious. Time is short. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. You see, and when you think like that, you've grown up. You're growing up in your thinking. You're growing up. You're becoming strong in the spirit. And it says here, he was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. I know in in the new versions, it probably says he was in the seminaries. That's what they were like for it to say. Uh-huh. But then, what it says, you're not in the seminary. He's not in the Bible college. The desert. What do you know about the desert? Well, the desert's a quiet place where when you walk out there in the desert with your cell phone or your wireless laptop, you get this little thing on the screen that says those two words that everybody in California at least hates. No coverage. I love it. No coverage. But you got coverage from God when you're in the desert. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And T-Mobile and Verizon and Singular and AT&T and Sprint—they can't say that. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He was in the desert. The desert is a quiet place where you have time to do what many people in Western society are afraid to do—to think and to meditate. I'm not talking about the lotus position. I'm talking about reviewing things, going over things in your mind, meditating, analyzing, weighing, reviewing, deciding, appreciating some of the things you're thinking about and rejecting others and growing as you're thinking. John had time. He didn't have any boom box out there. He didn't have any ghetto blaster. I can't remember the name of that park in San Francisco, the one that goes right down to the to the sea. Yeah, the Golden Gate Park. Yeah, I remember one time speaking at Parkside Chapel many years ago and uh, went for a walk that afternoon in the park. We were just walking along, enjoying the it was cool there and nice, nice day and we didn't see too many kooky people where we were walking. Walking down this sidewalk, you know, this paved walk that goes all the way down to the sea, you know. And uh, so we're walking along and pretty soon we hear behind us, boom, 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 boom. I turn around and look and I didn't see anything. didn't see anybody coming on the walkway. Pretty soon, boom, 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 boom. And I look around and here comes this guy. He was about, he looked like he could have played tackle for the 49ers. Huge guy. He must have been 280 or something like that. I don't know how tall he was. But he's got on mirror sunglasses and a backward baseball hat. And he's got roller skates on. And he's got this huge boom box he's holding up here on his shoulder like that. He's got all the batteries in there charged up. Man, he was sharing his music with everybody. <laughs> if you can call that music. Ba-boom, 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 and off he went down there. And I just stood there and watched. I couldn't believe it. Man, you can't even go for a walk in the park anymore. But you know what? There are people who live like that, and there may be some of us who live like that. We're afraid to be quiet and still, and some parents have never taught their children to be quiet and still. You will teach them to sit down and be quiet and still. John learned to be still and quiet. You think, oh, that's a cruel thing. That's a Puritan thing. No, it's not. It's a Bible thing to learn to be still and quiet and think. Because when you're still and quiet, God can speak to you. And you turn off the radio and the games and the TV and the CD and all these other things and just be quiet. And think. And if it's not this gadget, it's that gadget, and they got them in the buses, and they got them in the airports, and everywhere you go, the world is blaring and forcing information at people and entertainment at people because the idea is to keep people entertained until they reach their destination so they don't think too much. You don't want to think about where you're going or what might happen to you. It's like the stewardesses on the airliners. Their job is to keep everybody happy, all the passengers happy, until they reach the destination. They bring them a magazine. They bring them a drink. They used to bring them food. Now they don't. Well, soon they. Anyway, we won't go into all that. But this is the way it is. A pillow, would you like a blanket? And the bathrooms are at the front and the back. You stay in your half of the plane, and you stay in your half, and all these things keeping people happy till they get to their destination. That's exactly what the world is doing. All of the the philosophy, all the different kinds of education and the religion and the politics and the entertainment and the art and all these things that the world has. The world's got something for everybody. For everybody. But the whole point is the world is a system organized and headed by the devil for the purpose of keeping people happy without God. That's what it's for, and that's why God calls us to be separate from the world. Amen. The world is a is a stewardess, uh, is a system that acts like a stewardess on the airplane that's going to hell. Keep people happy, keep them entertained, let them laugh their way to hell, let them invest their way to hell, let them reform socially and politically their way to hell, let them do whatever. But don't, whatever you do, don't let them sit down and think and ask the question, if I were to die today, right now, if I were to die, where would I go? What would happen to me? Don't ask that question. And don't think about those kind of things and people are afraid to be alone and still and quiet and that's why they always in all the rooms of the houses and got the televisions and got them on all the time and that's why there's so many things speaking to us and talking to us the whole idea is don't think don't think don't meditate don't reflect don't analyze just have a good time don't take it too seriously I like that song from so many years ago, Take It Easy. That was the idea. In the desert, you don't have any of that. And God put John in the desert so John could be still and quiet and hear God's voice when he spoke to him. So John wouldn't be like everybody else. Somebody called him when they described his childhood, they said, the strange child. The child who was socially underdeveloped because he wasn't in all the programs and and all the activities and he didn't have all the well-developed social life and he wasn't busy like we are running from the time the sun comes up. We're up and running and off we go and first here and then we take them there and then we take them there until finally we get home and we all fall dead into bed and we get up the next day and off we go to the rat race again. And who is still and who is quiet, and who's listening to God, and who has time to? The desert. place of silence and meditation, and waiting and waiting is good. And I said it the first night, when we began, or the first day, when God prepares a messenger. The first thing he teaches that messenger is to be still and listen to God and don't move until you know what God has said. And some of us may not be able to hear when God is speaking because we are too busy and too entertained and too distracted. And we're not still we don't know how to be still and quiet and listen and think and read and meditate. Dear brothers and sisters and friends, these are the old virtues that have been lost in modern society that must be recovered in our lives if we're going to know what true spirituality really is. If Christianity is going to be for us a real experience and not simply an inheritance or a convenience, we need it. Not a life of frothy fun, and constant entertainment, amusement, and incessant activity. All they produce is, you might say, spiritual impotence. How long did he stay there? Till the day of his showing unto Israel. He stayed there until God said move. Uh And when was that? Well, we know by comparing the life of John with the life of our Lord and the information we have in the scripture that we're talking about when he was 30 years old. Could you be still and wait until you were 30? Would it be wasted time if you were waiting on God? See, if you move without being directed by God, you're wasting time and wasting movement. Don't be in such a hurry. Frequently, in the call of God, in a person's life, there's a period of waiting and testing by waiting. We don't like to wait, we like to be in a hurry. We're in a hurry to finish school. We're in a hurry to get married. We're in a hurry to get our career. We're in a hurry to get this and a hurry to get that. And we compare ourselves with other people in the rat race who at our age are already doing this and that and already have this and have accomplished the other and we feel inferior. And we shouldn't. We should remember. God calls us to wait on him. And to do things in his time. Not to do things in the world's time. God insists that his servants wait for him and listen to him. And I'm going to make it real simple. If you don't have time. Let's forget about going out to the desert. If you don't have time to be still and quiet in your home. And read the word of God and pray. Before you get up and gallop off out into the world. If you don't have time to be still and quiet. How can you be prepared to serve the Lord that day? Let's make it real practical. Let's not wait and see if God's going to call me to some great ministry and therefore I'm going to have to go off to the desert and build myself a little shack. Let's not think about it in those terms. Let's think about it in these terms. Do I know how to be still and quiet in my own home? Do I have time for God each day? Can I sit down and shut up and listen To what he has to say. And then speak. But in a conversation two people have to speak. And I believe it's better to let God speak first. Since he's older and wiser. And then I respond to what he said to me. You can call it your devotional time. Your quiet time. The daily sacrifice. The family altar. You call it whatever you want to call it. But it's not about calling it something. It's about doing it. It's not about admiring it and speaking well of it and having it as a ideal. It's about making it a practice. Still quiet and waiting. And don't feel like you have to fill up your young people's lives, your children's lives with constant activity. You're letting the world race them off and put them right into the middle of the current of the race just like everybody else. How can God speak to them that way? This lesson of waiting and quietness is not a waste of time. It is one of the best investments a person will ever make. In the life of Moses, Moses had to wait 40 years before he could serve the Lord. In the life of David, think of all those years after he was anointed that he spent fleeing from Saul. Before he ever came to all those years living in the cave and living a long way from Jerusalem. Think about those songs he wrote where he lamented that he couldn't come into the temple and worship. Why art thou cast down within me, O my soul? He wrote. God was doing something in his life. Paul, when he was newly saved, was off into the Arabian desert for about three years in silence. John is in the wilderness until he's 30 If we don't have time to be still and quiet in some way, in some practical way in our lives, it's very doubtful that God can do in us and use us like he used his servants of old. The servant has to be attentive to the master. So are our children being educated like John was? And are we taking that responsibility upon ourselves? And are we behaving like John's parents? And are those of you who are young people willing to follow in the steps of a man who the Lord Jesus said was the greatest of all the prophets, of all those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist? How come they don't hold him up for a role model? Why do we hold up doctors and lawyers and the rich and the famous and sports heroes And all these other things. We want our children to be professional athletes and and lawyers and this and that. Who would be willing to say, Lord, I pray that my child will be a follower and a servant of yours. And to teach their children that that's the best way to live a life. Well, God still has to call them and lead them in what they have to do. But is anyone looking for that call? Is anyone listening for that word? Is anyone quiet before God and saying like Samuel, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. May that be our prayer tonight. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Lord, for these lessons from the life of your servant John, John the Loyal. And though the world could call him that strange child, We look at his life with admiration and with yearning that we might see more lives like his in these times of ours so far away removed in time and in culture and in so many other ways. And yet we know that the word was given to us to guide our conduct and not just to give us knowledge. And so we pray that these lessons will be burned upon our hearts, those of us who are parents and those of us who are not, who are children. How important not to waste a childhood, not to throw it away, but to use it for God. That You might speak to hearts tonight, O Lord. And there might be decisions to give the first and the best part of life to the one who gave all for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.